0: I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Leela Phillip. Her new book is Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. It's a fun and really insightful book about everyone's favorite dam architect, its legacy in America, and the beaver's surprising future role in climate change mitigation. Leela, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you. So the first and maybe the most important
0: question is, why beavers?
1: Well, now that I've spent six years writing this book, I have to sort of counter and say, why not beavers? I mean, they're just so amazing. But um, I literally, it was serendipity. I was taking a walk with my dog uh, one day and I I literally encountered beavers building a pond near my home and it just stopped me in my tracks. It was one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen and that was the start. But when I when I then began to kind of research beavers and learn about them, I quickly learned that all the amazing ways they literally, made America, so the first foundations of wealth came from beaver fur, and I go into this in the book that our first multi-millionaire, John Jacob Astor, gets his start selling beaver fur, and our first corporations like the American Fur Company here in the United States, and then up in Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company are all about beaver fur. But it wasn't just that the first um, corporations were based on beaver fur. When I researched it a little more, I would come to realize that beaver literally shaped the continent. So this was just amazing to think that this little rodent had so shaped, helped shape the geography, the water systems that um, shape the continent, that, that the great boreal forests and the hardwood forests had come out of the, the water systems that had been shaped by beavers. And then to discover that we almost wiped them out, but that beavers had come back and were one of the greatest conservation comeback stories of the 20th century and could help us face, you know, really the greatest crisis of our generation, which is climate change. That was just amazing. So I I could go on and on, just wind me up and I can talk about beavers. And then there's the animal itself.
0: Well, we're going to get into some of that Definitely. um, I don't think I realized until I read this book that beavers were once found all over the world. I guess I just had them as kind of a North American thing. Are they still found in other parts of the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think beavers ha- and this is why I had so much fun researching this in the book. I mean, they have fascinated the human imagination um, in every continent that they have been found because they are so wonderfully weird and also in a way to go back to your first question um why i was so amazed by them i think they have amazed people because they also travel between worlds you know they go under the water and then they come back up and so they 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 mystify us because we don't fully understand them but yeah they they they've been in europe and central asia so um they are still, they're coming back to Europe. Europe wiped them out, which is why they needed beaver fur. And when they discovered that there were beavers in North America, they headed toward us as fast as they could, mm. which began transatlantic trade. Um, and, and we could talk about that. There's a whole move to rewild um, in the UK, in Scotland, and throughout Europe, that's pretty exciting. Um, just as there are environmental restoration projects going on throughout North America here.
0: You know, reading this book, I have been, um, my poor friends have been learning all sorts of beaver facts um, as I've been reading this book, as I learned things from you. What is the weirdest thing that you learned about beavers during this whole experience?
1: Oh, they're just, I mean, just look at them. They're just so amazing to look at. So they've got these bear-like faces that are so, you know, kind of wonderfully mammal and adorable. And then you go down and they've got these forepaws that are these little paws that are almost human-like because they've got these nimble fingers that have naked palms and they're incredibly dexterous. So if you watch a beaver manipulate leaves or twigs, and that this is why they're so good at building dams. And perhaps the most amazing fact about a beaver is that they're brilliant at building. So no other animal in the animal kingdom can build, literally constructs its world apart from beavers and man, which is, I think, another reason why humans are so fascinated by beavers. They literally construct their world. So they've got these hands that are so dexterous that pack mud and manipulate sticks. And then you go down their body and suddenly you encounter these huge goose-like feet, you know, that just don't seem to fit on a mammal. Right. And then this tail, which is like a big squashed paddle. And I describe it as if, you know, it was run over by a tractor because it actually literally appears to have tractor treads in it. You know, if you look at it and we now know that the, that serrated surface is there for a reason because um, while historically the beaver has been a very understood, um, very um, not highly understood animal. I think I misspoke there for a minute it's it's interesting that it's been so understudied, but we're now just beginning to catch up with beaver studies. And ha- it's been revealed that the beaver's tail is so full of blood vessels, and the serrated pattern enables it to have more blood vessels, and that that tail actually serves as an incredible water sensor. So the theory is, and the, the science is now revealing that the that those blood vessels in the tail actually enable the beaver to sense water pressure to the extent that they can detect when the water pressure in a pond goes down. And that's when they know to go run over and repair a dam if there's a hole in it. It also helps keep a beaver cooler in the summer and um, has other functions as well. But so they've got this crazy tail at the end. They're kind of like a platypus. This just sort of mishmash of features. But I think one of the weirdest but most wonderful features of the beaver um, that has been recently uncovered, which I think is quite wonderfully weird, is that baby, baby beavers have so much air in their blood that they're like corks. So basically baby beavers can't dive. And this serves as a natural babysitting system. So Baby beavers are incredibly vulnerable to predation. And if they could dive and get out of the lodge, they would just be eaten as coyote snacks in a minute, right? So um, they've evolved to be uh, unable to dive. So they can't get away. The little scamps just can't get away from their parents. They're stuck in the lodge until they're old enough to learn how to dive. And I think that's just like a brilliant adaptive feature. So that might be one of the most weirdest coolest facts about them <laughs> that their blood chemistry is such um that they have too much air in their blood to dive until they're able to survive
0: it's it, the the way that beavers can adapt is amazing to me you wrote that Lewis and Clark in their exploration of the West, um, you know kept Diaries kept in you know written written you know Diaries of their exploration and they wrote that the beavers that they encountered in the West, were extremely gentle and out during the day. Now beavers in the Eastern part of the country had been hunted for decades by this point, and they've actually become mostly nocturnal. And that just seemed like a really fast adaptation for an animal to make to this changing environment and and reactive basically to what was happening to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hypothetical. It's a theory, but it does seem to be pretty fast and pretty interesting. And, um, There are so many ways in which beavers are adaptive in ways that we just see in real time. For example, if a beaver has a hole in a dam, they will just fill it with whatever's to hand. And we have recorded, I've observed beaver dams full of hubcaps. In fact, I have a picture of a beaver dam built around an abandoned pickup truck. So they will just use whatever is to hand. Um, I mean, the, the natural material is wood, but if if anything else is to hand, they'll just use it. In fact, there was a story up in Canada recently where some um, people lost uh, power, internet. And um, they later found these fiber optic cables on top of a beaver dam. And the beavers had found them under the snow and just used them. Um, and that was the mystery solved of what had happened to people's internet. I mean, I think it's one of the lessons we can learn from beavers because they are all about change. And, you know, they, um, this is why I call them in the book, the Shiva of the animal world. They will, um, and, and this is the role that they play in the ecological, um, in the ecology of the forest, in, in the larger ecology, and why they are also called a keystone species, because they play such an important role, you know, the the keystone of a medieval arch is that brick at the top, that if you take the brick out, the whole arch falls away. And biologists consider beavers to be that important as an animal species. If you take the beaver out, the ecology really suffers um, up and down the line because what they do is so tremendously important in terms of bringing water to to the land. But um, they will take down a patch of forest, and so you lose the trees, but they will build a pond. And when that pond then recedes into a beaver meadow, that disruption creates a whole other arena of growth because there are certain types of trees that can only grow with that kind of disruption. So it's a whole kind of cycle of growth and regrowth that they are part of. But, you know, to go back to the water and climate change, which is a whole kind of conversation we could have, you know, as we face floods and fires and drought, we really need the water that they bring into the system. Um, wherever they are, whether we live in a more urban environment, whether we live in the country, whether we live in a woodland system, whether we live in an arid environment, beavers can help in all those environments.
0: You wrote that, the beavers are being reintroduced to forest in Washington state as a way to battle wildfires. Um, they're being returned to the high desert in central Oregon as part of salmon recovery. Can you yeah. tell us more
1: about this? Yeah, it's it's really tremendously exciting because um, I think, you know, historically we used beavers as pelts and then out here in the East, we thought of them for a long time just as pests because they would flood the places where we wanted to farm or live. But I think um, now we've come to see that um, we can harness what they do for environmental restoration. So out um, if we think about them just in terms of fire, um, you know, it kind of makes sense. Anybody who's tried to make fire out of wet wood knows it just doesn't work very well, right? So um, they are... Using beaver wetlands in uh, areas uh, of of highly forested areas as fire mitigation, you know, wildfire mitigation. So I was talking last night on um, with Dr. Emily Fairfax, who is really at the forefront of some exciting studies. Looking at, in fact, she was just at the forefront of a study funded by the U.S. Um, wildlife service and they're actually thinking about how to use beavers as a really a north american climate action plan not can beavers help fight wildfire but how many beavers where so where would we want to have a beaver wetland to help serve as a kind of speed bump for wildfire because they've actually observed that after some of these even the mega wildfires out west After the wildfires, they've been looking with um, drone photography and they can see that where the beavers had built beaver damming complexes, it's all green. Like in a completely charred landscape, you'll see these green refugia and that's where the beavers were. So the idea is to try to either translocate and relocate beavers to areas so that they can get going and bring water and build beaver damming complexes or support the beavers that are already there so that they can better, um, uh, you, know, habit, you know, build what they do throughout the forest to be in place because we know fires are coming and more fires are coming. And similarly, mm-hmm. out in places like um, it, Eastern Oregon, where they're really concerned to build up salmon populations, they have actually discovered that, whereas it was previously thought that beaver warmed the water and therefore were bad for salmonids who need, or who are basically cold water fish, that actually beaver damming complexes increase populations of salmonids. And um, so they're actually building what they call BDAs or beaver dam analogs, which are human-made beaver dams to try to encourage beaver to move into those areas and do what they do to increase fish populations. And finally, they're starting to think about doing that here in the East, down in the Chesapeake. And it's tremendously exciting. I think with a little bit more education, we're just gonna be so much better off because we can harness what beavers do uh, for free. Um, and increased biodiversity, have greater resiliency for fire and for flooding. I think there's this um, study I cite in the book out in Milwaukee that I think is just tremendously exciting where they actually funded by the Milwaukee Municipal Sewage Department. They did a very sophisticated study. And these are you know, scientists at the University of Wisconsin running very high-tech flood models. And they identified that if they put in something like 4,500 beaver in the upper watershed of the Milwaukee River, and this is open area where there would be no human beaver conflict, in something like 25 years, they could start storing 1.7 trillion gallons of water a year. That kind of water storage is valued at $3.3 billion. That is a lot of water storage. That's a lot of money being saved just, you know, for free. You don't have to annually go in with excavators, you know, bulldozers and re-engineer that. You just have to let the beavers do what they do. So I think people are starting to put dollars and cents to nature-based solutions and realize that we'll be a lot better off if we work with natural solutions like beavers, you know, where we can. We can't do it everywhere and we can't move infrastructure. We're not going to move the city of Hartford, you know, away from the Connecticut River, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, with a common sense approach, we're just going to be so much better off if we value um, nature-based options like beavers. so I, I I really leaned in heavily into the science of this book, which is why it took me so many years to mm. to research and write it because I, I really wanted to make the case and make it watertight that you know this isn't pie in the sky at all this is really practical this is solid. Not only are beavers wonderful and magical, and it's the wonder of nature, it's, it's for real, you know, and we need um, real solutions, you know, that are doable and and at our fingertips.
0: I do want to talk a little bit that you also write um, and spent time with trappers writing about the modern fur trade, which isn't anything the way it used to be. Um, But because beavers have been so successful coming back, you know, sometimes they, they do have to be removed from an area. Was this a hard part of the investigative process for the book, for writing it?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that because, you know, it it was a hard part and it involved, um, I think, a lot of, of of risk for me, but it was also an area of tremendous payoff, both personally and I think in terms of as a writer. And it was just a reminder to me that um, you really have to take chances um, when you investigate. Um, you know, my journalistic training always told me to go into a story and ask all the questions and not judge, right? That's that's your training. But um, I, I'm an animal lover. So, you know, I first met the fur trappers because, to back up, you know, for listeners who might not have read the book, I, the the beavers that I fell in love with um, who were building a pond near my home, I, they they disappear and I, and I'm trying to find out what happened to them because I fell so head over heels in love with them. And, And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because I also have some thoughts about, about that. I think one of the reasons why I fell so in love with beavers and people are so bewitched by beavers is because they are also these kind of travelers between worlds you know they 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 go down under and they come back up and it's just at this kind of they're kind of very interesting as animals and it's kind of profound what they do but anyway my beavers disappear and nobody knew anything about beavers except a neighbor said well call the town trapper and I was like what you know this is 21st century, there's people are still trapping fur. I couldn't believe it. I lived in Connecticut. I'm like, Martha Stewart lives, you know, lived like an hour from here. I I, I just, it was like cognitive dissonance. I had no idea people were still trapping for fur. But turned out that town fur, there was a town fur trapper, and there's still a lot of fur trapping going on here in rural Connecticut. It's a very rural part of the state. It's very wooded because the farms grew back after 1890. And, um, he said, no, he hadn't trapped the beavers, but um, there were fur trapping gatherings. And it, at first I was very intimidated to go to them. It was a very different culture. Um, I thought I would have nothing in common with any of these people. And it was kind of scary um, to go. But I met Herb Svansky, who I write about in the book, and um I was just completely surprised by what I would discover and the people I would meet. And also um, it would turn out that Herb Sabansky and other fur trappers I met knew more about beavers and cared more about beavers than just about anybody else that I was meeting. Um, and their knowledge base of beavers was really eye-opening to me because um, to, to hunt an animal, well and ethically you really have to know about them. And it really opened my eyes. Um, you know, growing up on a farm, I kind of knew there were people who hunted deer, my own family didn't, but we, we were apple farmers and so people hunted deer and uh, that was necessary actually because the, the deer would, would really destroy the tr- the apple trees. So I knew that went on and and I didn't really have a stake in the ground about that. So it was it was sort of part of the landscape of my childhood even though I as I say my own family weren't hunters but so maybe I was a little more open to it and and its place in the world but what I would discover was that for the fur trappers at least that I got to know in Herb Sobanski they were very in touch with being in the natural world and connecting to the natural world in this kind of very ancient way of being in the natural world as a source of kind of sustenance. And um, and I, I just learned to have a lot of respect for it. Um, so while I never wanted to become a fur trapper and, and hunt, I, it really opened my eyes to it. And I was really in the end, very grateful for that. And I also began to see that their commitment to conservation and preserving the outdoors um, overlapped with my commitment to preserving the outdoors. And I found that really interesting. And then when I researched American history, I saw that it was that movement of hunters and outdoorsmen that actually had led to the reintroduction of the beaver, ironically mm-hmm. and paradoxically. So, you know, we have a long, complicated American history and, you um, this was 2016 when there was such divisive politics happening with urban and rural culture. Yeah, it was scary and difficult, but in the end I was really um, grateful I had, I had pursued it.
0: Right. We we've only got a couple of minutes left already. I'm curious, you started out with encountering these beavers at your pond and the, all of these years later, what have you taken away from this experience? How has this changed you?
1: Oh, my gosh. I would say beavers have really changed the way I see the world, but also all the people I encountered in the book, you know, not just um, the usual people you might think, um, wildlife experts and conservationists, but the fur trappers and then the kind of eccentrics I would read about, like Dorothy Richards, this um beaver lady who dedicated her life to beavers in the 1930s who was very much a woman ahead of her time who founded the first beaver sanctuary I mean I never met her in real life but it was really interesting to pursue her story and then find that her beaver sanctuary was being carried on by um people who are are keeping it going now and then meet them in that chapter of beaver sprite but I think um Really, when I pass a swamp by the side of the road now, I no longer see this kind of place that I might think of maybe tidying it up. It it it's it's really kind of reset my own relationship to the natural world. I I really am much more open to um, just relaxing about change. And I I I wrote this book you know, during the pandemic, and it was such a time of loss and change. And I think I write about some of the personal loss and change I I went through myself. And I I included that because that was part of the personal journey I was going through when I was writing this book. And I think beavers really um, are, can can sort of show us in in, in, uh, on a whole nother level, a way of just resetting our relationship to the natural world, which we really need to do if we are going to face what's coming at us, which is accelerated climate change. And they are a story of hope and resiliency because beavers just get on with it, you know, and they're so ordinary, they're extraordinary. And it was, kind of a story of finding something remarkable in my own backyard, which I think I would love for readers to, I I wanted to share that with readers, because Mm. I think that is, is such a powerful experience.
0: I am so happy that you did. Leela, thank you so much for talking with me. I loved this book so much.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to have been with you.
0: Leila Phillips' book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America, is available now, and you can read an excerpt from the book on our website at WSKG.org and find more information there. Just a reminder that Off the Page and all public radio programs are made possible because of support from listeners like you. If you enjoy the show, then please consider making a donation to keep the program strong. Visit WSKG.org and click the red Donate button on the upper right corner of the screen. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Siracus. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page.